welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. We uh, have been at the fair all week. That's what the Hackbarths have been doing. I got the blue band and I've got the bruises to show it. Um, there's a couple rides there this year that are named after natural disasters. There's a tornado, there's a hurricane, and I have ridden them and feel as if I have survived natural disasters uh, and have found that I am rapidly approaching the age where it is more fun for me to watch my kids have fun than it is for me to just try to have my own fun because it's not as fun anymore physically. Um, but one of the things that's been uh, just a joy for me this week has been um, doing the 4-H projects with my kids. Uh, our two oldest do poultry projects. They show at the fair. We're chicken tenders. That's what the Hackbarths do. And uh, getting a chance to kind of be in that and grow over the last couple of years, there's something uh, unique about being a part of a community that wants to learn and grow together. And one of the things that's always fun is at the beginning of fair, you show up and, and people get set up and you kind of go and you kind of look at who brought what birds and this and that. But more what you're looking for is kind of how did they solve problems that you have? Uh, because it seems like every year you have a new problem, you have a new set of things that you got to kind of figure out. And we're ta- uh, constantly talking about how, how did you do that? What did you do with this? And most of the time, the way that you are kind of coached into the answer is not just given information or, hey, go check this website out, but they'll show you what they did. And kind of that hands-on practical modeling example is really helpful in being able to translate that into your project and just kind of the rhythm of the way that you would go forward as well. And I, I share that with you because we started a series last week called Deep Water, Living a Spirit-Filled Life. And what we're being challenged with is really to discover how to practically live out a spirit-filled life, uh, to live a life like Paul would describe in Galatians, to keep in step with the Spirit, because you have been made alive by the Spirit of God, keep in step with the Spirit of God. So how, how to practically go about doing that in our lives? And we're going to answer some questions about that this morning, and we're going to look at Scripture to see models and examples of how to go about doing that so that we can practically respond and take steps going forward. If you're a note taker, uh, I'm going to answer three questions uh, this morning. You can go ahead and write these down. If you're not a note taker, what a great day to begin. You can grab a pen right out of the seat pocket in front of you and scribble on the back of one of those connection cards. There's some blank space for you there. But three questions that we're going to answer this morning when it comes to uh, living a spirit-filled life. And the first question is this, how, how can I expect the Holy Spirit to be present in my life? Uh, it's, it's a good question to ask, and really the way that you address that expectation in large part is going to dictate what the practical experience of your life is going to be, because we have a tendency to have the expression of the life that we live really fall in line with our expectations, right? If you think about school starting and you uh, think about a class that you really struggled in, if you had an expectation going into the class that you weren't going to like it and you were probably going to struggle, guess what? That's probably going to be a self-fulfilling type of prophecy. We have a tendency to do that. So this is a good question for us to ask. How can I expect the Holy Spirit to be present in my life? 
Uh, the second question that we're going to ask this morning and answer is, is why is his presence important? So why is the presence of the Holy Spirit even important? Why, why should I even be aware of that? Why should I care? Uh, why should it be something that I'm looking to integrate into my life? And then our third question is going to be, how can I receive that presence? So the first question again, how can I expect the Holy Spirit to be present? Why is that important? And then number three, so how can I experience that for myself? And we're going to look at three uh, distinct sections, three kind of examples from Scripture. And I've uh, created some, some thought around M words for it. Again, just kind of for buckets for you note takers to hang your hats on. But we're going to answer the first question. How can I expect the Holy Spirit to be present in my life? We're going to look at the model. Uh, we're going to look at really the model that Jesus gave us in his own experience Second question, why is it the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life? We're going to look at the mandate. So we're going to say uh, what Jesus said and why uh, that's important. And then number three, how can I receive that presence? We're going to look at the method or the way to go about doing that this morning. And so with that background, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and get it out. If you've got your smartphone or your tablet, I would encourage you to open up your Bible app. If you don't have that, you could actually download that app while we pray and probably be all caught up by the end of that. But Lord, we ask that you would give us a soft heart to receive from your word today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would begin to work in us even now, uh, maybe even in a, a new and unique way for some people here, Lord, as, as they would just say yes uh, to the possibility of you being at work in their lives. Lord, would you soften our hearts that we would receive the truth of your word, uh, Lord, that it would take root and that it would grow and that it would produce fruit in our lives uh, for your glory. Um, Lord, and for our uh, partnership with you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, with your Bibles out, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to John chapter 1. We're going to start answering our first question this morning, and John chapter 1 is really going to be the framework that we build out the rest of our, uh, our time in God's Word this morning. Note takers, I'm going to refer to a number of different scriptural passages that we're not going to be able to unpack this morning. I would encourage you to scribble those down. Read them on your own if you want to go a little bit further. But we're going to start in John chapter 1. And the way that John begins his gospel is really unique compared to the other three gospel writers. If you're familiar with scripture, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the life and the ministry of Jesus from uh, differing kind of vantages and focus points. And John begins his really with the same type of uh, thought framing as uh, around Genesis chapter 1. He really uses the idea of creation and the beginning uh, to frame out his uh, beginning of the gospel of Jesus. The others all uh, begin either with the birth of Christ or the beginning ministry with him. But as that takes place, John begins to focus in specifically on the baptism of Jesus, but he doesn't talk about it as the event. All the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they're just kind of writing out their narrative, if you were kind of doing kind of a, a history chart or a timeline of Jesus's life, that's how they would be approaching a lot of their story. And they get to Jesus's baptism and they record the event. John actually records a lot of the concepts and the deeper meanings of that event and why it's important for you and I as he's framing out his gospel. And that's the background of John chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 29. I'm going to read these few verses together and then we're going to focus on a single verse up on the screen. And so the next day, this is after John has had a conversation with religious leaders. They've come and kind of quizzed him about who he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it. 
Uh, and this is something that has taken place after the baptism of Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he draws all of, everybody's attention to Jesus as he's walking, calls him out and says, Hey, this is the guy that we've all been waiting for. He said, this is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. And I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony, and this is important. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So in John chapter 1, as, as it's recording John the Baptist's words here, he draws everybody's attention to Jesus coming, says, hey, this is the guy that we've all been looking for, and this is how I know he's the guy. Because the Lord had spoken to me and said, the one who you see, the Holy Spirit, come on and remain. That's going to be important, note takers. And remain, that's the guy you're looking for. Now, if you go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you look at the record of Jesus' baptism, it was at that event that when Jesus came out of the water, when John baptized him, it says that the heavens opened, that the, the, uh, the, a voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm pleased, and that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the form of a dove. So the language here that, that John's describing, he's saying, hey, I knew this was the guy that we were looking for because this is what I was told was going to happen. And if you bridge it to the other three gospels, you know that that happened at Jesus's baptism. So that's how we know this is that baptism passage that he's talking about. And the reason why I draw your attention to this is because later in John chapter 7, we get to that anchor verse for our whole series. And we looked at this last week. If, if you weren't with us, I would encourage you uh, to watch the uh, replay video, or you can listen to it online. But when we, when we looked at kind of our anchor verse, in John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus said these words. He said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this, he meant the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' Jesus's intention for every Christ follower is that they would receive the Holy Spirit in them in such measure that the Spirit of God would not just fill them, but flow out of their lives. And that's something that's really, really important to recognize. So it's Jesus' intention for you. If, you. if you say, man, I'm a follower of Jesus, it's his intention for you that not only that the Spirit of God would be in you, but that he would be at work in you in a way that spills out of your life is demonstrated to the world around you, that there's this filling up or infilling and then full outflowing of what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. And the reason why this is important to look at what happened with Jesus is for you and I, the expectation needs to be that we receive the Spirit of God and that he remains with us. And that's not always how we feel. Like most of the time, the way that we feel that God interacts with us is that when we're getting it right, that he's with us and he's patting us on the head. He's like, oh, you're my favorite kid, right? And then like you, you, you do something wrong and then it's like, well, I've got a new favorite kid, 
Like, have you, I mean, have you ever felt like that? As if, as if you're so close to the Lord when you're getting things right, and then when things are really difficult, or when you're struggling, or, or when you're dealing with issues of habitual sin or temptation, or fill in the blanks, whatever failure would look like expressed in your life, isn't there a sense that you're far from Him? And we have a tendency to feel like the Holy Spirit deals with us in that way. And you see that actually in the, in the Old Testament. That's why this is really important. In the Old Testament, the way that the Spirit of God worked in humankind, because they weren't uh, regenerated, because Jesus hadn't died and rose again, because sin and death wasn't conquered, the, the language of the Old Testament was that the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody. The Holy Spirit would come on them. And most of the time, it was for like a, a, a moment or a series of time. It was for an assignment or maybe for an anointed office, like a prophet or a priest or a king. But you could actually, the Holy Spirit could withdraw himself as well. And you see that in Saul's life. Uh, the, the first king of Israel, he, he was anointed. He was spirit uh, empowered and he was, he was doing all the right things. And then out of willful rebellion, it says that he forfeited that. And there's a, a really sad place in scripture that says this. It says that the spirit of God withdrew from Saul and he never even knew it. He, he, didn't, he couldn't even recognize when the spirit of God had removed himself from anointing his life. And, and so there's Old Testament precedent for that type of thinking, but you need to recognize everything changes with Jesus. And so John says, hey, I know that when I see the Holy Spirit remain on the one, that that's the one. And the language that's used here is a permanent language. That word remain in the Greek, it's a permanent type of language. And what you see demonstrated in Jesus and promised from him is that the Holy Spirit comes and remains. The Holy Spirit comes and remains on his people. In, uh, uh, in John's gospel and all the other ones, it lets us know that Jesus was going to not only, uh, that John was baptizing in water, but Jesus was gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit. That what he was receiving, he was gonna impart to us as well. And it's important to recognize how important this is. Uh, Jesus had done no earthly miracles to this point. He hadn't begun his ministry. He wasn't doing anything of substance or renown. In fact, Jesus was super plain up until this point. So much so, right, that as a carpenter, 30 years old, having grown up in his community, that when he began his ministry, everybody was like, yo, didn't you put my cabinets in? Like, when did you become like a rabbi? Like, when are you, like where's your degree? You didn't go to school. Like, you've just been blue-collar, you know, Bill over here building stuff. Like, what, what is going on? Like, he, he had been so plain and insignificant that when he began his ministry, people were skeptical even of it. And it's important to recognize that his ministry began after this baptism, after the Holy Spirit became present, because Jesus was fully man and fully God, but he emptied himself, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, of all of his divine privilege that he came and he lived like you and me. And then he showed us how to live right with, with the Lord and into the things of the kingdom of God by having the spirit of God present. And so what's demonstrated in this model is the expectation for you and I, and here's how we answer this question. How can I expect the Holy Spirit to be present in my life? My expectation should be that the Holy Spirit remains. 
If you have said yes to Jesus, if you're born again, if you're saved, if you've asked Jesus into your heart, whatever kind of little turn of phrase that you would use to indicate that you've surrendered your life to Christ and you've gone from death to life, Scripture says at that point, what what Scripture teaches is that the Holy Spirit now comes and resides in you, and he remains. And he's present in your failures He's present in all of your mess-ups and all of your mistakes. He's present in your struggles. He's present in your disappointments. He's present in your victories. He's present when you are walking and living aligned with the things of God, that it doesn't change, that he doesn't kind of withdraw and put distance between you when you're having struggles or problems. Like the, the Spirit of God is present in your life, and he remains And as we kind of move on in this series, talking about living a spirit-filled life and having kind of this deep spiritual well reservoir in our life, recognizing that the Holy Spirit remains is really, really important in walking these types of things out. So here's our next question, right? Next question, we move on, and it's why is his presence important? All right, Pastor, I've seen it. You've kind of demonstrated it. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm with you, or maybe you're lost already. That's okay. When we get to the end, you'll be, you'll be all right. You'll be able to respond with us. But why, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Okay, one is because Jesus modeled it, uh, and, and that's, a, that's, that's kind of a good precedent. But two is he mandates it. Jesus actually kind of commands us how to interact with, with the Spirit of God or how to frame out our expectations for it. Many of us are trying to live a life where we are aligned with the plans and purposes of God, but we're not aligned with the Spirit of God. We're, we're looking to somehow be good and moral people. We're, we're looking to live a life that somehow has substance or purpose, and we're working really hard to try to manufacture that ourselves. But what you see demonstrated in the life of Christ is that it is the Holy Spirit that brings those things into alignment. And walking with him or being led by the Spirit brings us to that place. Almost all of the gospel writers record the temptation of Jesus. That after his, uh, after his baptism and after the descending of the Holy Spirit on Christ, he was led into the desert and he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. And almost all of the gospel writers record that. And, and there's different kind of uh, details in the accounts that they all give us. But what you find is a few things. Number one is that Jesus was challenged about his identity in that place. And it was after, it was after the presence of the Holy Spirit that when that challenge came, that his identity was really, really resolved. Many of us struggle with this question. I don't know who I am. Not only do I not know where I'm going or what I'm going to do when I grow up, I literally, I don't even know who I am. And you'll go through seasons in life where that becomes a little bit more prominent. Sometimes we call that a midlife crisis, right? I just, I don't know who I am anymore. Maybe I'm, you know, sports car Steve and I just got to go out and get a new vehicle. Like, like we're, we, we're trying to find ourselves. And when we do that, apart from the spirit of God being at work in our lives, we will find ourselves... We, we, we will find ourselves in the wrong things. We'll answer that question the wrong way. We, w- we won't actually know who we are. And we'll begin to become who we think others expect us to be. Have you been there? Okay, so this is really, really important. Another thing that you find in the temptation of Christ is, is uh, his assignment ends up being 
clarified who he is and what he came to do, who he is and what he came to do, who he is and what he came to do. And that's kind of that, that plan and that purpose that you and I long for. Like, what, what, what am I supposed to do with my life? You're going to find that clarity when you are living in step with the Spirit of God. And outside of that, you're going to just kind of explore things and turn things over. And you may find some stuff that you like, but ultimately there's going to lack a deep fulfillment because it's not connected to a deep understanding of who you are. You don't have an identity and you don't know what your assignment is. You don't want God's plan and purpose for your life. And then the ultimate thing that comes out of that desert temptation is that Jesus demonstrates what it means to have victory over the enemy. And he relied on the word of God in each one of the rebuttals of the temptations of Satan there. And so there's a good encouragement for you and I to be uh, scripture read, to know what God has said. But ultimately it has to come, it comes down to identity and assignment. And it's important for us to know that those things go together. So in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has uh, died, he has risen, and he's getting ready to leave. Matthew chapter 28, towards the end of the chapter, there's a a portion of scripture that's often referred to as the Great Commission, right? And this is where he kind of gives the disciples their marching order. He actually speaks to them about who they are and what they're supposed to be about. And he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so he's giving them a mandate. He's giving them a marching order about what they're supposed to be about. But I want to draw your attention to the first thing he says and the last thing he says in this uh, as it's recorded in Matthew. The first one, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How, how can he say that? And how would they understand that to be true? Now, the, a, a good starting point would be, well, he was dead and now he's not, so that probably says something, Pastor. Yes, I would agree with you. But Jesus was constantly being challenged on his authority by religious leaders, by, by people that knew him, by the people in his hometown were like, hey, I thought you just kind of worked over at the hardware store. Like, what's going on? Like, his authority was always being challenged, constantly. Like, what authority do you have to teach that? or to go there to do that, or to say that, or to act that way. Like, how can you do that? And especially in the book of John, but all the other gospel writers uh, record this type of stuff, what demonstrated Jesus's authority was not just his words and not just his own commendation of self, it was the signs and wonders that accompanied his ministry. Who gives you authority to heal somebody on the Sabbath? I don't know, the guy who was blind, who's now not blind. Can you do that? Like the, it, was the, it was the miraculous. It was the power of God that was demonstrated where even as people were wrestling with their theological constructs saying, well, I didn't think the Messiah would do that or be like that. or like, I don't think that it says that, does it? And it's like, yeah, but did you see that guy? He was healed. Do you have an answer for that? No. So when Jesus is saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he's saying, I have demonstrated the power of the kingdom of God because of the spirit of God at work. In Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 72 disciples. He gives them some marching orders. He encourages them to go not only and preach the good news of repentance in the kingdom of God, but he challenges them and encourages them to go and to demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God. And they return in Luke chapter 10 and they say, this is wild. 
even those who are oppressed by the demon, uh, by the demonic, are being set free. Even, even spiritually oppressed. Like, we're, we're, we're doing all the stuff, Jesus. And he's like, yeah, that's great. You went in my authority. Celebrate more that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That you're, celebrate your celebration more than your experience of this, but don't miss, you went in my authority. So when Jesus is talking about here the, the, the Great Commission... This is really important. So many of us go and we say, okay, I'm going to go do something significant for God. I'm going to do something significant for the kingdom of God. But we don't go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we wonder why what we're trying to do lacks significance. We need to go in his authority. We need to go demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God. The last part, he says, and uh, surely I am going to be with you till the very end of the age. Age. Now, if you read the rest of Matthew 28, he leaves. He's like, hey guys, I'm always going to be with you, uh, but I'm leaving. See you later. And most of the gospel writers record them actually watching him leave. And I would think like, I thought you said you were always going to be here uh, with all of us to the very end of time. Like, how is that? And he said earlier in his teachings, he said, it's good that I go away because the father will send the Holy Spirit. That's how, the, that's how Jesus is present with you and I to the very end of the age. It's because the Spirit of God is in us and with us. And so in the mandate where he says, hey, this is who you're to be and how you're supposed to impact the world, it is bracketed by inferences of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizing the presence and partnering with the work of the Spirit of God in uh, in, in, in time, in creation, in your life, in my life, in our context. Mark chapter 16, as he's leaving, he gives them marching orders and says signs and wonders are going to be a part of this. In Luke chapter 24, he says, hey, you're going to go and be heralds to all the earth, but don't go until you've received the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 1, uh, verses 4 to 5, and then in verse 8, you can look at those. He talks about how that's going to be and what that is going to look like. But all I want you to see here is that what Jesus modeled in his life is that the Holy Spirit comes and remains. And what he mandates for you and I, if we're actually going to go and do what he asks us to do, it's going to require the Holy Spirit to be present and active in our lives. And our expectation about what that's going to look like and how that's going to be in large part is going to frame what our experience is. And I don't know if you've ever uh, taken a class in school where you knew the class was going to stink before you started. Anybody been in one of those? Right? I've been in that as a teacher before, not just as a student, where you say, oh, man, I know this class, and oh, I don't know if I can handle this. You, you know what I found about expectations like that? They're almost always met. Every class that I looked at, and I thought, that teacher's not going to like me. Oh, lo and behold, it didn't feel like they liked me. Now, I wasn't doing anything to you know, make myself really likable, but that's besides the point, right? Like the, the, the class that you look at, you say, man, I don't like math. I'm going to struggle in math. Well, you know what? You probably are because you haven't even started and you've already determined how you're going to end. And for many people, because they don't have an expectation of the Holy Spirit being at work in their lives and using them in any significant way, lo and behold, don't really feel like the Spirit of God is present and they don't actually see any significant things taking place in our life. We need to have a higher expectation of who God is and what he can do and what he would do with those who would just raise their, raise their hands and say, you know what, God, whatever you're, whatever you're doing today, I want to I be part of that. 
And I may not be the best person to be hands-on in this project, but I know you've got enough grace to even cover over my mistakes. But I want to be a part of what you're doing today. And many of us, I think, would see more of that, would have a deeper uh, enrichment and uh, experience of the things of God in our lives if we framed an expectation for it, rather than relying on manufacturing things in our own strength or making things come about on our own. So that's why his presence is important. You really can't live into your identity and the plans and purposes of God apart from the Spirit of God being a part of that process as well. So let's look at our third question, and this is going to um, be one that we spend a little bit of time on. Uh, but our third question is, so how can I receive the presence? How can I receive the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life? And I'm calling this section the method. So this is kind of like the how but I'm gonna leave it purposely crazy, crazy broad. And here's the reason why. Because in most of recent church history, the more specific and narrowed people try to become, the more dogmatic and determined they are to iron out every minute detail, what usually ends up taking place is they create things like this. They create, um, they create division, they create disagreement, and they create disappointment. And rather than trying to stand up here and saying, hey, the, the, here's the one way to think about an infinite God, I'm going to give you the broad parameters of what we know and allow you to move towards the things that God would bring of a deeper conviction in your life. There's more health there. There's tons more grace. And there's more of the idea of one body of Christ rather than multiple little clicks of Jesus that are taking place. But the method is, is going to look this way. Okay, so this, this is the how. Um, I don't have time to unpack all of the doctrine, all of the theological statements. We don't have time to go through all of the, the verses. If you are interested in this stuff, square one is a great place to start in our discipleship process. Square three, we do a deep dive on all of this stuff. And so if you want to go in, in, in that direction, you can. But here's what scripture clearly teaches. Number one is that when you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. It's called the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you could call it an infilling as well. There's people who like to really split hairs on semantics in scripture, especially in some of the Greek stuff. But a number of these terms are used interchangeably by different writers, depending on, on who you're listening to. But the Holy Spirit comes into your life when you yield yourself to Christ. Paul would say this, he would say you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence in you. And again, he remains, right? You're not an Airbnb for the Holy Spirit on the weekends, and then when you go back to church on Monday, he's like, well, I gotta get out of this place, or back to work on Monday, tired a little bit. It's fair, man, fair brain. He remains, okay? And so if you have said yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God is residing in you. So important for you to start with. You receive the Holy Spirit when you're saved. The Spirit takes up residence in you. Paul would use this language. He would say at that point, the Holy Spirit positions you in Christ. Paul's language is this, that you are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. Paul's favorite uh, pay, favorite designation for a Christ follower. He doesn't say Christian. He doesn't call us all disciples or followers. Paul, in many of his letters, would say, in Christ. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. It's a very important term. In Christ is your position 
and you are put in Christ, you are baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's work at salvation to you. Now, if you remember at Jesus' baptism, in all four gospel accounts, it's recorded that John is going to baptize in water, but the, that Jesus intends to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That the, Jesus doesn't baptize you in water. In fact, when you get baptized in water here, it's us. We're baptizing you in water, and it is a living theater of what has already happened in your life because of what the Holy Spirit has done. The Holy Spirit has baptized you in Christ. We're showing that visibly as you dying to yourself and rising to new life in Christ. You are positioned in a new place. That's what baptism looks like. Jesus didn't baptize in water. In fact, one of the gospel writers goes so far to make sure that you know that designation, that Jesus' disciples baptized people for repentance of sin, but Jesus never actually baptized somebody himself in water because he didn't come to do that. He came to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Every gospel writer records it. And so it's important to recognize that being baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit is to position you in Christ. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit by Christ is to empower you to new life. It's, 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 it's for you to live out what he demonstrated is to live according to the plans and purposes of God, to live into alignment with the things of the kingdom of God. Okay, so now we get to this point. Okay, so how does that happen? And that's where I'm going to leave it broad. Because what you see in Scripture is a number of different examples. In the life of the disciples, right, the, the, the 12 and the 72, this is what it would look like. That before Jesus' death and resurrection, they were sent out and they were given authority. The Holy Spirit would have come upon them and they demonstrated the power of the kingdom of God, but he didn't remain on them, right? It was just kind of an on-off. It was for an assignment. In John chapter 20, verse 22, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. He is showing himself to his disciples. He spent 40 days teaching them and coaching them before he ascended to heaven, is what Scripture tells us. And in John chapter 20, 21 and 22, it says this, that Jesus appeared to them, and he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And everything about that context and everything that you would draw as a conclusion would be that they received the Holy Spirit at that point. And most biblical scholars would tell you that this is when the disciples actually would be what we call born again or saved. That This is when the Holy Spirit was received by them or indwelled them, but they had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet. In fact, later on, as Jesus is getting ready to ascend, he says, you're going to go and you're going to do all this rad stuff, but don't do anything until you've received the gift that was promised. And in the beginning of Acts, he refers to that again and says that that promise is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so for, for, for the disciples, what you see is you see they had an interaction with the Holy Spirit, that they were then saved and they received the Holy Spirit, and then later they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and it was demonstrated out. There's a lot of different ways in Scripture that it gets talked about, and some of the semantics get muddy for people, but that's kind of the picture there. If you read the rest of Acts, if you read how the church starts and what God is doing kind of in those narratives, you see a number of different examples. 
There's times where people come to faith in Christ and they are indwelled with the Holy Spirit and they are baptized in the Holy Spirit and it is demonstrated in some way. You'll find others that there is a huge time gap between those things happening. But what you do have is the intention of Christ that all of his followers would walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, if you try to draw too hard of a line that says, well, this is the way it works because that's the way I experienced it or that's what I was taught in seminary and it's the only thought that could ever be had, it has to be right, you get divisive, right? Uh, You get discouraged and you get disappointed. So I want to answer broadly as we close how can I receive the presence of the Holy Spirit? Pastor, if, if there's some different ways that people have kind of argued over this and it's, and it's caused division, like I don't want to be a divisive person. I don't, I don't want to be disappointed in the things that I had as expectations for the Lord. I, I don't want to be in this place where that would be my experience, where I'd be causing disagreement. Like what, what can we land on? And we're going to do that this morning. We're going to go to Luke chapter 11. If you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to go there. But the words will be up on the screen. And we'll close with this. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And on a number of different occasions, he did that. Um, It's good for you to explore kind of growing in that discipline. On at least two occasions, Scripture records him giving some type of... um, uh, rendition of the Lord's Prayer as kind of a type to follow. In Luke chapter 11, he, there's an abbreviated kind of Lord's Prayer that's part of that, and he's kind of teaching about the persistence of, of knocking and having an expectation that, that God is going to open the door, that there's this expectation that Dad listens, that he cares, that you can approach the Heavenly Father. And then he moves and begins to give them an example. In, in Luke chapter 11, verse 11, He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Okay, now hopefully the answer is, well, nobody would do that, but a pretty bad dad might, right? Then he says, or if he asks for an egg, hey, pops, can you make me breakfast, right? It's going to give him a scorpion. Now, again, rhetorical question. The answer should be no dad should do that, right? Moms, you can agree. Dads were like, well, you know, we're kind of adventurous. Verse 13, if you then, though you are evil, right, though you are less than, though you make mistakes, though you fail, though, though you are prone to seeing things incorrectly, with all of your failure, with all of your frailty, with all of your shortcomings, if you know the difference between giving a good gift to your children and a bad gift, Right, the bar's really low here. Even you can get this right. If even you can get this right, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I love that Jesus takes the time to make this kind of this issue of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer so accessible and so simple. 
And in church history, it has been a divisive issue at different times. There's all kinds of theology and kind of doctrinal alignments that have taken place over church history. And it, it fuses a lot of ways that, that people interpret other portions of Scripture because they've got to keep that aligned. And I like to make it really, really simple. If you want the Holy Spirit to not just be present in your life, but active in a way that's demonstrating the power of God, Jesus says that if you ask dad, he says yes. And it can't be more simple than that. That if you, with an earnest heart, truly desire to see the Spirit of God at work in you and demonstrated through you, if you will pursue that, and if you will ask dad and begin to take steps of faith towards that end, dad says yes. And it's so important for us to land on this truth as we move forward through the next several weeks of this series. Because for you, a key component to whether or not you experience a spirit-filled life, a a deep reservoir of the Spirit of God at work in your life, a a key part of that is going to be determined by this. Is that really what you want? Do you have a desire for all of what God would have for you and what that might mean? And would you be willing to, in faith, respond to that? Because if you ask, Dad says yes. It's as simple as that. Church family, if you'd stand, worship team, if you would come forward. I want to take a moment to pray for you guys as we close. Lord, we want to thank you for your word and the truth that's found in it. Thank you for the examples that we can see and the connection to our lives that we can apply. And Jesus, we're so very grateful, not just for your work on the cross, but the way that you demonstrated how life could be lived as a result of that. Heavenly Father, we're so very grateful that you don't just put your spirit upon us for an assignment and withdraw it if we don't measure up, but that you give your spirit in a way that he remains. Holy Spirit, that you would choose to remain with us. And that may even be a hard thing for us to, uh, to really receive because we, we know that that means that you're present in some pretty ugly places in our lives. Places where we struggle and fall short, places where we wrestle with doubt places where we're overwhelmed sometimes by temptation and sometimes when we're purposely rebellious. Lord, it can be an uncomfortable thought that your spirit would be present with us. But Lord, when we move past the the discomfort of being fully known by you and recognize that in spite of that knowledge that you choose to be with us, that we really are forgiven and covered in Christ, that we have been positioned in Christ and that that means something for our transformation. We can find a new degree of courage and confidence to walk out a spirit-filled life. And Lord, for many of us, we have attempted to do that in our own strength, in our own resolve. Sometimes we've tried to hide in our own spiritual disciplines. We've got really religious would you forgive us of that 
You help us to see that the plan and the purpose that you had for us, that it goes hand in hand with the the work of your spirit in our lives. It's not something that is left to us to kind of discover on our own and then kind of flounder in manufacturing, but you invite us to come to you and to be known the way that you know us, to really have a confidence in our identity in Christ and then the ability to move out and live a life that demonstrates that. And Lord, there could be a lot of concepts and ideas about how your spirit works and what we're supposed to expect. Would you just raise our expectation that we would have an expectation that you're present and that you're purposed and that you wanna work in our lives. And Lord, would you help us lower the bar of entrance to just being willing to ask. Jesus, your words say that if we want more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that all we have to do is ask. Lord, I know that there would be hearts here today that that would be their desire. To know you more intimately, to have you working in their life more deeply, to see you expressed more frequently. Lord, for those hearts that are crying out to you today, would you answer them? Would you answer them? Lord, help us to resolve this so that in the coming weeks as we look at what it looks like to have the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit demonstrated in our lives, aligned and purposed with your plan, Lord, that we will have a confidence that Dad says yes in Jesus name amen amen two simple action steps for you this week if you got a smartphone or a tablet you can snap a picture or you can catch these online later the first one is to invite the Holy Spirit to be at work in your life make that invitation just say you know what Holy Spirit what are we doing today ask him to begin to lead you respond to those promptings and the number two trust that your heavenly father says yes when you ask if you ask him he says yes begin to walk in that confidence this week.